Well, in, in this chapter, in chapter 8, we find Israel is right on the edge of a significant transition in their history politically. Uh, so, so there's about to be a transition politically as Israel moves from a tribal structure of leadership to a monarchy in the, in the land of Canaan. Uh, because like we started to see last time, Israel has come to the prophet Samuel now and he's asking for a king. And while this reflects a transition politically for the people of Israel, uh, what we started to see last time is that a political trans, uh, transition is not all that's going on here, but instead this also, or in addition to, this also reflects something quite tragic spiritually in the life of the people of Israel. And the tragedy of faith that's uh, recounted here for us isn't merely in the fact that Israel's asked for a king. In fact, we looked at how the Lord's promise to Abraham so long ago, back in Genesis chapter 17, included uh, the reality that kings would come from Abraham. Within Abraham's family, in the people of Israel, kings are going to come. So it's not that the office of a king is a problem in Israel's life per se, uh, but instead the spiritual tragedy of this situation is reflected in what the Lord tells Samuel in chapter 8 verse 7 when he says to them, it's not that they have... Uh, rejected Samuel as a prophet. The real problem is that they, like the nations around them, have rejected God as king, and they want a king instead like, like the nations around them. In other words, the, the heart condition behind their request for a king isn't one uh, that's settled in a posture of trust in God, but it's actually the exact opposite. So the Lord tells Samuel that this request is a direct rejection of him ruling over the people's lives. And ultimately, it reflects the people's own historical tendency toward idolatry. Uh, since the days that, that the Lord delivered them from Egypt, God says to Samuel, uh, they have had this propensity toward trusting in things that are actually contrary to God Himself. So they're asking for a king like the nations around them, but ultimately what this reflects is a rejection of the Lord and His, His powerful and proof capacity to care for them and deliver them. So they want, a, they want a leader who will go out and fight their battles, like verse 20 of this chapter tells us. Uh, but in reality, the Lord has been the one who's constantly proved himself faithful to bring his people victory. Uh, however, they're, they're idolatrous. They, they prefer to trust in something, in this case, uh, the office of an earthly king. So they prefer to trust in someone uh, other than the Lord who's proved so faithful. And so in studying this passage, we can ask the question, what does this look like? But what does it look like to reject the Lord as king? Uh, what does it look like to move from a posture of trust and reliance on the Lord that we saw so amazingly displayed just back in chapter 7, this posture of trust and reliance where the people of God asked Samuel to cry out to God on their behalf when the Philistines were attacking. They move from this posture of reliance to now this posture of rejection. What does it look like to move from a place of, of trust and rest in the living God and now to this place of, of, of turning away from Him? And this passage helps us to answer that question. And like, like we said last week, this is an important question to be able to answer. What does it look like to reject the Lord as king? We need to be able to answer that question simply uh, because it's important that we're able to perform spiritual diagnostics on our own heart. We need to be able to see when these kinds of temptations creep in. We need to be able to recognize the kinds of forms they can take both in our own lives individually and even in our lives corporately as God's people. Um, because we know that, that, that the fulfillment of the Lord as our king motif is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We all know that. Now, Jesus is the one to whom every knee will one day bow. Jesus is the sovereign over the kingdom of light. Jesus is the one who's come and defeated Satan and death. He's the one who's brought us ultimate freedom. He is God the king. 
But we live in a time when all kinds of alternatives are present to us. Uh, we live in a time when, 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 just like the Israelites here, were tempted away by the ways of the nations around them. We can be tempted away from a full trust and reliance on the living God as, as well in our own lives. We can be tempted away from a, a fixed and firm trust in King Jesus. And so a passage like this helps us check our hearts. How, how, how does it look to, to move from this posture of trusting to a posture of rejecting God as King? And, and we saw the way this starts to work out last week when we first noted that this movement from trusting the Lord to then rejecting the Lord can occur when there's a perceived void in our lives. Uh, so in the end of chapter 7 and into the first, chapters of, or first verses of chapter 8, we read how Samuel uh, really conducted faithful ministry among the people of Israel. You heard it read again this morning. Samuel's going around conducting faithful ministry, coming back home to where he lives, providing a place for the people to offer sacrifices. Samuel is conducting himself faithfully as a judge and a prophet in Israel. But Samuel was growing older, the text tells us, and his sons were corrupt. And not just uh, corruption within his, his family uh, causing problems there for, him, for the people, but we also know that Israel is right on the edge of war again which is reflected down in verse 20, uh, kind of as a byword. They want a king to lead them out into war. But later, when Samuel reflects on all this in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he talks about uh, the imminent attack from Nahash, king of the Ammonites, during this time. And, and, so, and so putting all this together, we see uh, that, that, that the, the context of the leadership condition there in, in Israel at the time what was one where a perceived void was felt by the leaders. The, the, Samuel's getting older, his sons are corrupt, so they're not going to be able to do a very good job. And not only that, but the threat of war is very present. There's this perceived void. However, as we know, this is only a perceived void and not an actual void in the lives of the people of Israel. Because God has proved Himself faithful time and time again in their history, not only to raise up leadership, but also to bring them victory and, and relief in times of battle. So the people should know that they're not left high and dry, but the Lord, who has proved Himself faithful, will continue to prove, prove Himself faithful. However, when this, this drift away from the Lord does start to set in, that drift from trusting to, uh, trusting to rejecting the Lord, that this is how things often start. There can be a perceived void in our lives. And again, we talked about that at length. It's not an actual void, but there seems to be this need that's left unmet. And so instead of trusting in the Lord to meet that need, we start to look in other places, places that the world around us might look, the kings of the nations, so to speak. And then that's how the drift can begin, like we saw last time. And that perceived void is then made something, uh, it helps make something else clear that, that going on at the same time as a perceived void can also be this situation of idolatry that we were already talking about. So the people move from this perceived void to God expounding the fact that they have idolatrous hearts. The, the real problem is that they're trusting in things that are other than the living God. And so this perceived void in our lives can betray a kind of spiritual condition of idolatry, a condition that rejects trusting in God and embraces instead alternatives around us to be the thing that is really going to bring us wholeness and life and peace or whatever, whatever else it may be. So, so all that brought us up through verse 8 last time. Now, uh, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to finish out this passage and we'll notice uh, three final aspects involved in this move from trusting the Lord to rejecting Him as we work through the narrative here. Um, three, three different parts become clear. And, uh, and actually, if you like, I'll just give you the three words so you can, you can follow along as we go through them. We have in this, the rest of this passage a warning, a refusal, and a concession. 
So there's a warning, a refusal, and a concession. And as we work through those, we see this involved move away from, from trust. So uh, we'll take the biggest section here first, verses 9 to 18. And in that section, we see uh, that this, this move of rejecting the Lord includes what we'll call a sober warning. Not just a warning, but a sober warning. Um, when I was studying to be a teacher, we had a guest lecturer speak in our classroom management course. Uh, now, naturally, for all new teachers, it's one thing to know the content you're supposed to teach, but it's another thing entirely uh, to have the skills necessary to wrangle a room of third graders in such a way that you can actually teach that content. Uh, that's the real daunting thing for, for new teachers. So, so the classroom management course in the ED program, it was a much anticipated class. Certainly here, we all thought we're going to discover all the secrets uh, that, that are, that are uh, in the service of keeping the little darlings in line and those kinds of things. And so, and so in our class, we had this guest speaker come, and, and he shared his strategy for classroom management. And here's, here's how it went. Here's how it, the, first thing, the first thing you do, he would say, is always to give children a couple options to choose from, either of which would be conducive to the, to the learning objective for the day. So, for example, little Billy. Little Billy can sometimes uh, cause some trouble, but what we need to do for little Billy is we need to make sure that we tell him he can work on this math problem here at his desk, or he could go to the back table and work on the same math problem with the group uh, that's working out the math problem back there. So he has these two options to choose from. Uh, there's, there's, there's always two ways presented. Both are good, and the child then will still feel like they're the ones in control because they're making their own decision, and what could possibly go wrong with that? Of course, if things do go wrong, this lecturer was saying, uh, if, for example, Billy and all his, his saintly choice-making third-grader capacities decides that, that neither of those options were actually acceptable to him in his tiny sovereignty, and, and he decides to go throw pencils at Sally instead, well, 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 then the response was supposed to be something like, oh, Billy, um, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Uh, we didn't want to give any kind of stern directive there. It was just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And as a thinking what, if you approach things in this way, uh, kind of from the angle of, of offering your friendly but reserved opinion, well, then Billy would be much more likely to comply. And now, immediately you hear that, and, and you reach the conclusion for yourself that there's a reason this person was lecturing in a college classroom instead of actually teaching a third-grade class. Uh, be, because the theory sounds very nice, but in real time, if Billy's choosing to throw pencils at Sally... And you say to him, I wouldn't do that, Billy, if I were you. Billy's going to look at you like you lost your ever-living mind because, of course, you wouldn't throw pencils at Sally. You're the teacher. Teachers don't throw pencils at Sally. Third-grade boys throw pencils at Sally. That's a perfectly wonderful thing for a third. But no teacher's ever going to do that. He's going to look at you like you lost your mind. And so in this context, then the pencils keep flying and everything's out of control and we're all wondering what happened in our ed program. Um, but but I, I share that with you, and you're probably wondering why I shared that with you. But, but I share that with you because it kind of illustrates what's going on in this next section of the text. That what, what happens next in this passage is, is not Samuel going to the people of Israel and, and shuffling his feet a little bit and humming and hawing and wringing his hand and saying something like, well, you know, I hear that, uh, that you're interested in having a king, uh, but, but, but I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's not how Samuel approaches what's happening next. Instead of this kind of, of soft-pedaled, offered opinion on the matter, Samuel does the exact opposite where he brings the people this very authoritative warning. It's a sober authoritative warning that God himself issues through Samuel about the extreme, uh, what can we call ultimate anguish, oppression, that will accompany exchanging trusting in the Lord for a king like the nation. 
So, so in verse 9, you see there, the Lord says to Samuel, listen to the people's request for a king. And then he says, but solemnly warn them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. And then in verse 10, this is exactly what Samuel does. We read that Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking for a king. So, so Samuel the prophet is commissioned by God to solemnly warn these people. It's, a, it's an authoritative warning from the sovereign Lord himself regarding the, the anguish that's going to come to the people if they go after this, this king of their own choosing. You need to know what the kings of the nations are really like, Samuel's going to say to them. And, and, and he, he works that out in this authoritative kind of way. And, and it's, just, it's just noteworthy here that in the context of moving toward rejecting the Lord, it is noteworthy just to see that this warning does serve, even though it's firm, even though it's, it's sobering, this warning does serve as a means of grace. Um, so, so often, when we're sliding away from faithfulness to God, in the kindness of God, warnings do come to us. God is faithful to do this. Warnings can come by way of, of conviction. Maybe as a close friend speaks in a pointed way to us, those conversations may not be very fun, but there's, there's God's grace found in the fact that people who are close to us can call us back to a place of obedience. Or warnings can come in the context of the Word being preached in a worship service, just like this on Sunday morning. The Word of God comes to us by the ministry of the Spirit and warns us of things that are contrary to His good way. Warnings can even be affected on our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we're quiet with our own thoughts for a moment. We've probably experienced this in some degree. Right? Just as a general observation, it is interesting to notice that oftentimes people who are moving uh, away from the Lord at the, at the quickest pace are also those who tend to leave the most, lead the most um, kind of frenetic and busy lives. Right? Have, have you noticed this? There, there can be a kind of frantic, constant motion in the life of someone who's distancing themselves from, from trusting in God. It's as if they're doing all they can really to, to create as much noise as possible uh, that, that will drown out the conscience that, that's pricking them. But the Lord, we see, the Lord comes and He affects warnings on our hearts as we drift away from Him. And we just want to be tuned to that because it's a grace. It's an extraordinary grace that God would, would draw us back, that He would give these warnings and, and those kinds of things. And again, in this case, the warning uh, communicates the very significant truth that communicates the resulting anguish that's going to come for the people when God is ultimately rejected. So just watch how this plays out in verses 11 to 18. Uh, first of all, the Lord says that if you want a king like the nations, that king will come and that king will take. He'll take. He'll take your sons for battle, verses 11 and 12. He'll take your daughters to serve in his household, verse 13. He'll take your property and give it to his, uh, to his attendants for his own purposes, in verses 14, 15, and 16. And he'll take your servants and livestock for his own benefit, verses 17 and 18. So, so the Lord's saying, you're rejecting me, and instead you want a king like the nations around you, uh, but, but you need to know this, a king like the nations around you is going to come and is going to take. Take, 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 take. Five times it's repeated here. And, and it's not just a warning against the king's taking that's here, but we also notice that it's a taking that's ultimately linked to bondage for the people. You see this in verse 17, uh, explicitly, where the Lord warns that you yourselves can become His servants, or you yourselves can become His slaves. A king like the nation is going to come and take, and it's a taking, the Lord warns, that ultimately brings you to a place of bondage. 
And then in verse 18, the Lord says, when all that has happened, there's one more thing. And, and here's, where, here's where the warning gets climactically uh, sobering. Verse 18, when that day comes, so that day of taking and bondage, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. So, so back in the Exodus narrative, the grand beginning of that narrative is the people in bondage there crying out to the Lord and the Lord hearing and the Lord acting. That, that's how the Exodus narrative begins so, so wonderfully. Uh, back one chapter in chapter 7, you remember the people told Samuel to cry out to the Lord for them when the Philistines were attacking and Samuel cries out to the Lord for them and what does he do? Well, he thunders against their enemies. He delivers them from the hand of the Philistines. Now, in the case of rejecting the Lord, he says you're going to cry out because of this, this, this taking and bondage that's going on under a king like the nations. You're going to cry out but I'll be silent. So we see what's going on here. The point of all this is that to reject the Lord and go after something or someone that isn't the Lord, who isn't the Lord, and ultimately place our trust there, ultimately the outworking of that, we can narrow it down and say it's twofold. First of all, rejecting the Lord will not bring about flourishing and well-being and freedom. First of all, the outworking of this is going to be oppression. This, this taking and this bondage, which is something we want to continually remind ourselves of in all aspects of life. The application of this can be, can be very broad just as we think about what it is like to live a life where we say, I don't want the Lord's way and instead I want this way over here because this way over here, as I look out at the world around me, seems better. This is the way I want to run in. We live in a time when we, when we especially see all kinds of connections to, to an acknowledgement of God's way being rejected very dramatically and vehemently around us. But the thing is, that doesn't result in freedom in life and flourishing, does it? As we look at how things are going in the world around us, it doesn't result in the life that people long for, nor the rejection in, in these kinds of things. Having People having things the way they want them. I want to do it my own way. The example that we see as we look around are disastrous. In fact, just... Uh, just this week, I was, I was doing some, some work uh, for a class, and I came across an article in, uh, in, in Forbes magazine. And in Forbes magazine, uh, they were reflecting on some recently published data. The article was dated May 19th of 2021. Uh, but they reported on, on uh, some very sorrowful statistics around, around youth in the transgender community. And this is, I'll, I'll quote this for you verbatim from the article. They say 50, 52% of all transgender and non-binary young people in the U.S. seriously contemplated killing themselves in 2020. 52%, 52%. And this is touted regularly, publicly, educationally, as something that's going to bring you freedom and wholeness to pursue these kind of directions, which is contrary to the fact that God has presented himself as the one who fearfully and wonderfully makes humanity, as a God who makes us in his image for life and flourishing. But we find these things working out as people step further and further away from God and they, and, they, and they laud these things and they praise these things. But we look around and we say, what is the public outworking of going at a distance from God? What is the public outworking of rejecting Him as our King? It's not flourishing. It's not joy. It's not, I have all that I've ever longed for. It's sorrow. It's ultimately death. And so we just see that even in the example, as we, as we read through this text, uh, we, we see it in the, in the passage here as the Lord directly instructs the people in the fact that this is what's going to happen. But we also see that kind of oppression, that kind of anguish existing just experientially as we look around. 
Uh, we don't need a theology degree to put that kind of thing together as we watch uh, what's happening around us. And so, rejecting the Lord, it brings this, it brings this kind of oppression, it brings this, this bondage, like, like what uh, Samuel recounts for the people here. And then also along with that, we see very clearly, to reject the Lord as king, it also brings the very real prospect of God's judgment, which is what he says here to the people, when you cry out, I won't answer. Now, now we know the Lord is gracious. We know the Lord is gracious. And for those who feel their need and call out to Him, He will never turn them away. We know this truth about God. But we also know that for the arrogant who reject Him, who perpetually know the truth and defy Him and defame Him and blaspheme Him in that truth, well, like we read in the book of Hebrews a while back in our studies, you can't trample and trample and trample on the grace of God extended and remain safe. You just can't. And so, and so the sober warning is here. The Lord says, if you want a king like the nations, here's what you get. The king is going to take, you're going to be in bondage, and I will be postured in judgment towards you because you've rejected me. It's as if he's saying, you, you, you people are going down a road where you're getting yourself into an awful mess. Not unlike Romans 1, where we read about how Paul says that, that after, after rejecting the Lord, what do people receive on the other side of that rejection? Well, they receive exactly what they want. They receive the, the, the life given over to lust and all of those kinds of things under the judgment of God. It reminds us of, of that George MacDonald quote, who was the 19th century author. C.S. Lewis uh, tells us he was his, his mentor, literarily at least. And George MacDonald has that statement where he says, the banner that flies over hell says, I am my own. He says, I am my own. I, I, I want it my way. I'm going to get it my way. And the Lord says, you don't want me. You don't have me. Of course, to not have him is total and complete sorrow and disaster. So these things are, are put together here. It's, it's a heavy word, but it's important because we can never be found flirting with the notion of rejecting the Lord uh, simply because it proves devastating to, to our circumstances. And that's not just something the Bible teaches, but again, that's something that's true in, in the general revelation of the world around us. We see that to go contrary to His way of life is, is not to find a kind of freedom that, that, that opens us up to this wonderful way of peace and rest, but it's actually to find the exact opposite. It opens us up to a life of sorrow in so many categories. And here, uh, we're reminded that, uh, that just like Samuel will say to the people here, there's a warning that can be issued when we think rejecting the Lord is ultimately going to bring us to the place uh, in life that we, that we so long for and so desire. So there's this, this very sober warning here. Samuel lays things out very plainly. Um, it's, it's the word from God himself. And, and, then, and then we see how the people respond to this. So, we move from this warning now to a refusal, this refusal to listen. Uh, here's where things really get dangerous as we think about the progression in this chapter. Uh, remember back in the beginning we had that perceived void. It wasn't an actual void, but the people were thinking they're not going to be taken care of. And, and so the Lord makes it clear this is an idolatry problem, so things are moving in a bad direction. But then they're warned about the devastating effects of, of this direction. However, now, instead of repenting, so instead of saying, okay, Lord, I see that. I see it like we saw it back in chapter 7. I see that to reject you actually leads away from all things that are conducive to life like you've promised us. Instead of repenting, the people vehemently refuse to listen. If you look at verses 19 and 20. So the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. 
We must be like the nations. We want a king. We hear your warning. We reject it entirely. We want a king. Even though the Lord has proved himself to be the one who's fought their battles for them, that the evidence has been plain and obvious in Israel's history. Chapter 7 is a recent example of that. The Lord is the one who fights for his people, and yet they persist in this stubborn commitment to reject the Lord. And, and this brings us to the simple application point, again, of, of running gospel diagnostics in our own heart, uh, just around this category of, of rejection. Maybe we could broaden it out a bit to say this reflects a stubbornness of heart. We can have that stubbornness of heart creep in in our spiritual life. The Lord speaks. He makes His way plain. Uh, but in certain categories, I may decide to refuse to listen to those things. And so I can just check myself by this. Am I, am I stubborn with regard to God's revealed way, even the warnings that He extends to me? Am I, am I stubborn? Are you stubborn? Has, has the way of the Lord been made plain and clear to me in places in my life? Have I, have I been brought to directly see that He is good and faithful and will ultimately care for me completely? And even with that, am I refusing to, to, to pay attention to His warnings in my life? Am I stubbornly committed to some things other than the godness of God in my life? It's a question worth asking under a text like this. Maybe, probably for us, it's not as big in our life as, as directly rejecting God entirely. But I found myself asking, are there places where Christ as king has been devalued in my life and Jared as king has started to make a play for the throne? Are there places like that? Do I persist in a kind of stubbornness where I let that be okay? Is this occurring in my life? It's a question worth asking. So we read these two verses and we're almost, we're almost embarrassed for the Israelites on this point. How could we get through all of this and have, have them respond in such a way? But it's really not so far removed from our own condition when we start to think about it. Stubbornness in the face of God's revealed truth, this refusal to listen to God's plain revelation and, and corrective revelation, it's a very real thing. And I would speak for myself in saying, I know that full well. We know that. So it helps to take stock and engage in proper inspection. Of, of our hearts. You can ask a close friend to help us with that. You can ask your spouse. They'll be honest with you. Uh, do, do you see any areas of, of persistent uh, spiritual obstinance in me? So this warning is provided. The people refuse to listen. It's a sure sign that they're, they're set on rejecting the Lord. It's, it's very devastating. Which then brings us to the final verses of the chapter, uh, verses 21 and 22. And in these verses, we have what we'll call a divine concession, a divine concession in verses 21 and 22. Um, in fact, I'll read those again for us as well. Verse 21, Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. It is amazing, just twice now in here, Samuel hears a devastating response from the people and he doesn't react to them immediately. Do you notice that? He really, he really does personify a kind of gentleness and patience as a leader, which is, which is just noteworthy in Samuel's life. He's not knee-jerk. He goes and he prays right away each time. Gets a terrible response from them and he doesn't ream them. He goes, he goes and he prays. So, so Samuel uh, listens to all the people's words, which were not good words, but he listens to them. And then he repeated them to the Lord. And the Lord says, listen to them. The Lord told Samuel, appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. Um, so on the one hand, this response from the Lord is, is fairly surprising, especially as we think about the narrative of Samuel as it's unfolded so far. Uh, so far, when the people persist in sin, you, you notice this in the book, the Lord doesn't give them what they want, but instead He does bring judgment upon them. So we saw this in the life of Eli, 
in, in a personal way, didn't we? Where, where Eli is, is judged by God, chapters 2, 3, and 4 talk about that uh, because of Eli's sin. He's judged in his personal life. We also saw that, saw that in Israel's corporate life in chapters 4 and 6, uh, where the people are persisting in sin. The Lord brings His, his heavy hand upon them. This is, this is what He's done. And we'd expect that again here. After all, the Lord's made it clear that the root of what's going on is the really, really big problem of idolatry. I mean, I mean, that is the thing. You read through your Old Testament and you think, what is the sin that's reflected in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, which then carries over into the New? What's the thing? It's idolatry. Not subjecting ourselves to God as God, but putting other things in that place. That's the biggest thing of all. That's at the center of all sins, ultimately. And the people are rejecting Him, so this isn't a new thing. This is persistent in their lives. So what would we expect? Well, we would expect judgment here. We'd expect judgment. But instead, in these verses, we have divine concession that the Lord permits their requests for the king. And the Lord says to Samuel, appoint a king for them. And in fact, throughout this narrative, at three different times, the Lord makes a comment that, that surprises us along these lines where he says to Samuel, listen to them. Listen to the people. Verse 7, 9, and again here in verse 22, the Lord says, listen to them. And now he says, appoint for them a king. So, so we have to ask, what's going on here? Why, why does the Lord respond in this way? And we can understand this by starting to put together a true view of legitimate kingship, of the purpose of legitimate kingship in Israel and God's own place among His people. So we have to think about this here for a moment, but this will, this will repay us. Uh, remember, kings in Israel are not inherently a bad thing. In fact, kings in Israel is a promise fulfillment thing. Kings in Israel will reflect part of God's promise to Abraham being kept from Genesis 17. Kings will come from you, God has said to them. Now here we are, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Kings will come uh, in Abraham's descendants. Um, and, that, and that's not a bad thing. That's part of God's good promise to Abraham. But in that, what the people must understand is that they don't need a king like the nations. They need a king like the Lord. And ultimately, they, they need the Lord for their king, which is where this is going. Uh, but, but this process of revealing that need, the process of bringing the people of God along in seeing how we desperately need God Himself for our king, that process of making that plain, in a sense, begins here. The Lord says, give them a king like they want. And we mentioned this last week, but the desire of the people is then reflected in the appointment of Saul. As, as, the, as the king in, in the next chapter. In chapter 9, we'll see that. And even Saul's name is connected to this in that Saul, uh, that, that name Saul corresponds to the Hebrew verb for to ask or to request. So he's the king of the people's asking. And how did that ultimately go? We'll get a little ahead of ourselves in the narrative. It went badly. Ultimately, it went badly. Right, so ultimately failed to be a good king. He failed to be faithful to the Lord. In fact, here in verse 20, the very thing the people want is a king who will lead them out into battle. And Saul ultimately proved to be a coward in battle. You remember that from the Goliath episode, among others. He's a coward in battle. And then, by the end, he was ultimately reduced to a paranoid disaster. The king the people requested failed as king. But then the Lord raised up another king, King David, who is described by the Lord as the king after his own heart. 
You see, it's not, it's not that a king in Israel is the problem. It's that a king of the people's rebellious asking is the problem. So that's where the struggle is beginning. But in giving the people room to see the folly of their ways, ultimately the people come to embrace God's appointed king. Not the people's asked for king, but God's king. The king after God's own heart, David himself. They embrace him, which ultimately sets us up to understand the rest of the biblical storyline. Because what the people ultimately need is God's king. They need this king after God's own heart. And while David certainly gives us a glimpse of that kind of king that we need, he does prove himself to not be the ultimate one that we need. The Lord makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. From David's line, there will be one who will sit on the throne over God's people forever. All of those kinds of things. But David's not the guy. In fact, there's a big red letter event that helps us see that David's not the guy in the whole Bathsheba adultery episode. You remember earlier in this chapter, what is the king going to come and do if he's a king like the nations? Well, he's going to come and he's going to take, 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 take. The word's repeated multiple times here. When we read the story of David and Bathsheba, the word is present there too in in the most devastating statement in that whole narrative where we read, David sends for Bathsheba and what? Takes her. Takes her. David's not the ultimate king. David takes what he should not take, just like the kings of the nation. And in that, we start putting everything together. What we need is certainly not a king of our own requesting, a king of our own prerogative. We don't need that. And, and while a king after God's own heart is better, even, even David can't ultimately meet the righteous standard that we need so badly. Ultimately, what the royal history of Israel will show is what the Lord has proved already way back here in the beginning of all this. We need God Himself for our king. You see, you see, God's concession here ultimately serves to show us our absolute and desperate need for Him to come as our ruler. He's showing us what He's already made clear in the text. We need God in our, as, as our King, which of course is, is what we have in the coming of the promised Son of God. The ultimate anointing is, is God's own Son, Jesus. That's, this is the King that we long for, so it's driving in that direction. God's going to come as King. He's the one we need. But, but you see, what happens here is, is, is God is not a God of insecurity. He's not wringing His hands because the people of Israel are requesting a king of their own making. He's not a God of insecurity. He's the God of accommodation and patient historical purposes. He works through the events of history, the events of our lives ultimately, to make it plain that what we really need and who we really need is the Lord Himself. We need Jesus. He works in these ways. In fact, the psalmist, in his own reflection on things in Psalm 119, says what? It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why was it good for you that you were afflicted, psalmist? So that I may learn your statutes. We come through these seasons. The Lord purposefully coordinates our lives in such a way that we can come through these seasons where we're instructed in what it really means to know Him over time. He's not an insecure Lord. He brings us through these processes knowing full well that the end of His purposes is going to result in a recognition of of the fullness of of Christ's work in our heart if we belong to Him. This is what He does. So, So I wonder, just as you think back on your own experience, I wonder if you can recall circumstances in your life that reflect, in a sense, the Lord's concession. 
Can you? You think back and you wonder about, about maybe those things that, that you've done, those things you've been through, those things I think back, oh my goodness, that was so foolish of me. Why did I, why did I ever do that stuff? But then as you consider the way those events formed you, you can see that the Lord isn't absent in those things, but instead He actually uses those to bring you into a more full knowledge of your what? Exclusive need for Him. He's the one I need. You may have gone after certain things for a while only to finally discover that the greatest of all grace is the ruling lordship of Jesus in your life. You might have thought other stuff would bring relief and joy and rest. We go through those seasons as the Lord is bringing us along. But really, when we come to find out, it is Jesus alone who can make us sing. Jesus is the one who really comes and makes us whole. You see, even in the, in the people's rejection of God as king, instead of being defeated himself, the Lord is the king to be moving his redemptive purposes forward that ultimately direct us toward the king uh, we ultimately need. And then whether it's through the, the narrative of gospel history, as it's plainly revealed here in the Bible, or whether it's through the experience of our own Christian lives, we can see that as we trust in the Lord, we see that even in our own folly, he's bringing us to places of yielding to him as like we sing our good and gracious king. All, all of this narrative, all of the whole Bible for that matter, is pointing us in the direction of the fact that Jesus fulfills our need. He is the one we long for. And so we come from a narrative like this and we shake our heads at parts of it and we think, oh my, why are they, why are they being so stubborn in their hearts? And then we reflect on our own lives in silent, honest moments and we think, oh, how, how could I have been so stubborn in my own heart? And we can get to the point even where we think I've ruined everything. I mean, I've made such silly decisions. I've, I've, been, I've been engaged in such folly and, 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 and ridiculous ways in my past and, and here I am and I, I desire to know the Lord, but I just, I found myself moved away from Him because of these silly, stubborn uh, facets of my heart that just keep coming up again and again. And we read a narrative like this and we see, even in God's words of judgment, which, by the way, Jeremiah is going to reflect later, calling out to God, having him not answer as the people are going into exile. It feels like God is gone. Even in those contexts of hardship and separation from God, what are we seeing? He is never removed from his purpose of fulfilling the entirety of his salvation plan in Jesus Christ. All of it brings us to see he's the one we need. Jesus is the one we need. The Lord is king. He's their king. We need to see that right here because the whole rest of the Bible is going to come back and put a great big punctuation mark on that same thing. The Lord is our king. And so we can rest in that. We can trust in that, that though our folly may be present, uh, though we may have gone in directions that are silly and contrary to the good ways of God, these good ways of God are never more powerful than his redemptive purposes, the climax in the security of Christ as the ruler of his people. And so we're thankful for that. And we praise God for the reminder that comes. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the grace of your word. We're thankful for the supremacy of your son. We pray that we would see him for who he is, that we wouldn't be tempted to drift away from him, but we would embrace the Lord Jesus and his way, that we would come to find the life that's offered there continually and persistently. We pray as we're often instructed to pray, not only that, uh, that your kingdom would come and others would be brought into it, but that we would be maintained in your kingdom, that the Lord Jesus would continue to be the one we look to. And we know that that is an act of grace that you effect upon us, and you do that, uh, not least of all, through your word. So use it to uphold us and build us up today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.